This is Young People Giving Adults Advice, Season 2. Hello and welcome back to Young People Giving Adults Advice, Season 2. In this episode, Leonie is chatting to Ryan and Sam. These two have started out on really different paths and it is super fascinating to hear their different perspectives on religion, work, ethic, and just life in general. We start the conversation with Sam. I am 22 this year, and I would like to say that events which characterize a lot of my person is, I guess because being a pro gamer, so I was in professional games for roughly two years. I had team captains, my team, um, in a game called Smite in Australia. And essentially, as soon as HC finished, I got picked up by a team, which was an amateur team, and we managed to squeeze into the last spot in the pro league. And we climbed from last place to first place at the end of that year. And we ended up going to the world championships which was wow. a really big deal. So I feel I was very accomplished. I was like, woohoo. And then we got wrecked overseas because Australia actually isn't that good <laughs> on the world stage. W- was it all online or did you actually physically go somewhere else? It's both. So yeah. bulk, the bulk of the competition is online, like qualifiers and pro matches. And then the finals are usually on a stage somewhere. So I've played in Adelaide, Melbourne, um, LA and Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. Amazing. And then after that, I was like, there was not much of a future left in esports because I didn't really see longevity in the game I was playing. And I also felt like I climbed the highest mountain that I could realistically climb because I really like improving and being competitive and stuff. So I stopped and I went back to uni. And I'm now doing accounting and finance. I actually started with accounting and finance, but I failed in my first year playing games. Um, so I started to redo my degree and now I'm working at Macquarie Bank um, in operations. So I just started my first full-time job. Yeah. Okay. So you're full-time and you're studying part-time. Yeah. Yeah. And how long have you got left to go on your finance degree? Um, roughly a year, maybe a bit less. It just depends on how much I learned. I'm working full-time mm-hmm. now, so I guess I'm not too stressed about finishing as soon as possible. It's like, like when the you job say, here, he's like, Ooh. Yeah. Nice. And when you say operations, what does that mean exactly? Um, I could give a fluffy answer, but honestly, it's just glorified data processing. There's a bunch of data that needs to be put in from one system to another. And right now we don't have the technology to automate these processes because there might be a lot of like checks and compliance issues and the technology is not there yet. So we need a human to do it. So I just need to, our entire team just learns to do these processes and we move box, move data from one box to another. It's not very interesting, but that's, the, it's an entry level role. It's, it's very different from playing professional games. Not as um, definitely not as stimulating, but it's a job and it's, it pays okay. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, how is it working from Macquarie Bank? Um, yeah, realistically, it's boring. I mean, especially in the operations role. Again, like being a pro gamer is so exciting. You're a, like a mini celebrity in your little little pond. Um, people think you're important. I used to be a Twitch personality, which is. For the older people out there, it's kind of like being a celebrity on YouTube. That was very interesting. Now it's, I guess Macquarie is good. When I tell older people, like my uncles and my parents, they think it's great. It's a reputable company. Um, But for me, it's just, 
I am aware that it's going to be boring for at least like five to 10 years, honestly. Like it's no way going to be anywhere as interesting as what I did before for at least 10 years, unless I'm like an outlier, but I don't think I'm, I'm like that. So <laughs> it's good and I care about my future, which is why I work there. That's and so, fun. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the future, then, if you're thinking it's going to be boring for ten years, say, what what is the exciting vision on the future for that? Uh, I am still really driven by my hobbies. So, um, I think Ryan knows that I was really into dancing in high school, and I still am. Mm. Um, my competitive nature hasn't changed. So I really like competing. I want to get to a level where I can travel overseas and compete and place and represent Australia. I think that's that's one of my passions. And obviously with the lockdown and everything in Australia, I haven't been able to compete in dancing very much, but it's still something I care about a lot. And I do it four times a week. Like yeah, after wow. work, I just head to the city or to the studio and train or do competitions and such. Awesome. What sort of dancing do you do? Uh, it's a very niche street style called locking. <laughs> it's very funky. It's very happy. It's very performance oriented. Um, and it's really fun to watch. It doesn't look very hard compared to like spinning on your head, but it is. <laughs> but and there's a lot that goes into it. Um, I do mostly freestyle, which means that any song can play, and you have to dance to it and adapt. And yeah, you kind of have like a thirty seconds to one minute window to dance, and then your opponent does the same, and then judges go like three, two, one. Like the MC says three, two, one, and the judge goes like this guy won or that guy won. It's all like very on the spot. It's improvised and it's fast paced and exciting. So you're really into this high pressure environment. Both <laughs> yes, those yes things. I am. I'm good at that now. I can confidently say. <laughs> yeah. And do you set yourself targets when you're doing the data as well? Do you go, okay, this today I'm going to nail this. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally against my personality profile, what I like. But it's my foot's in the door, and hopefully I can get into a full time role that's more interesting. But yeah. yeah. Very cool. Thanks, Sam. Ryan, tell me a bit about yourself. Yeah. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm a Christian uh, and I work as a data pipeline engineer uh, in a small digital marketing agency in the CBD. Um, and yeah, just like Samuel, I am 22 and I'm working full time but still studying part time. I should be finished in like two weeks. So that's exciting. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I'm finishing up a degree in data science and decisions at UNSW. And yeah, this is my second job. I was working as a systems manager at one of the residential colleges at UNSW, which is where I studied. Uh, and then five weeks ago, I started this new role as a data pipeline engineer, which pretty much, like, that just means that there's data in one place uh, and maybe similar to what Samuel was talking about, uh, like just automating the processes uh, for data to move from one place to another so a person doesn't have to do it, um, which like, in terms of like the data, it's a bit less sensitive than banking data. Um, and so uh, perhaps, yeah, there's been a bit more input from especially Google and Facebook in developing technologies that can automate that process and make it easier for advertisers to access uh, their platforms. So that's what I'm sort of doing for, um, yeah, we, we have about 50 mid-sized clients, uh, mostly in Australia, and we just look after their, their data, their advertising data and make it all pretty for them uh, so that they can, yeah, hopefully make decisions about how they can advertise better in the future. And is this um, this job in data science now that you're working in, you, you're, you've moved from your studies directly into your career, essentially, so in you're working within your industry, right? Yeah, uh, I guess that 
is true. Um, it's not really where I want to end up, um, but that's all right. Um, my, my plan is to just to work for a couple more years uh, and get some experience in the workplace, and then I'm planning to retrain as a Christian minister. And how does that turn around? How do you move into becoming a Christian minister? Uh, there's, yeah, there's quite a well-defined path in Sydney, especially among Sydney Anglicans. So uh, generally what you do is you take two years to do an apprenticeship uh, and you might apply or you might like get like in some ways a little bit headhunted. People might ask you to do a traineeship role and be keen to train you. Uh, and you do that for two years and you sort of work on the ground full-time uh, doing ministry-related stuff like running Bible studies with people, reading the Bible with people, teaching people about the Bible, uh, catching up with other Christians and just seeing how they're going, looking after them, uh, whether you can you can do that on a university campus or in a church. Uh, and then after that, if you still feel like that's something you want to do after being wrecked for two years, um, you can mm-hmm. yeah go and get a formal education at a theological college uh, and you do that for... Uh, you can do it for one year to get a diploma, but most people do three or four years um, and, yeah, study. They learn Greek and Hebrew so they can read the Bible in its original language and hopefully, therefore, understand it better and teach it better. Uh, and, yeah, then they also learn stuff about church history um, yeah, and all sorts of different ways to understand and read the Bible and hopefully get it right when you try and teach it to others. Um, that's the goal. And why did you start with data science and why is it important for you, I guess, to get this experience in, in the workplace in data science before moving into that vocation? Yeah, there's, there's nothing particularly uh, important about data science, uh, but I do think it is in some ways important if you're going to be uh, teaching people about the Bible, uh, I think it's helpful if you are some way connected with what their experience might be. And most people are just working a nine-to-five full-time job. And if you've never done that, maybe it's a lot harder for you to relate and understand uh, what they're going through on a day-to-day basis and how mm-hmm. God's Word might speak into their situation. So that's why I think it's important to yeah, put the effort in. And I also just think work can teach you some really important things. So uh, I, I'm a terribly lazy person sometimes, uh, <laughs> and I'm not very good at putting my head down and working. Uh, and I really hope that work teaches me how to do that and how to increase my capacity so that I can work well uh, because, yeah, you don't want someone who's lazy to be um, yeah, in charge of your church or, or something like that. So I think it's really important that, yeah, I learn some skills from work and work has a lot to teach me. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, that's another reason why I think working is important. Have you learned anything so far by working <laughs> in data science? Yeah, part of the reason I decided to change my, my job um, was that I was working in this job in this residential college that, yeah, was really relaxed and wasn't pushing me professionally or even personally. Um, And it was really nice. Everyone was really great and it was enjoyable (laughs) to work there. Um, But, yeah, I wasn't getting called out or pulled up on anything. Um, And so, uh, yeah, I didn't actually find that workplace to be a place where I could learn some of those things that I think full-time work can teach you. And so hopefully this, um, this job is a bit more... Yeah, soul destroying in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> so you can rebuild. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sam, tell me, what, what do you empathise with there? Oh, I was in government last year for a year. Um, I was an intern at eHealth. Um, it was very relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and Macquarie? 
Um, How's your soul? <laughs> it's intact. <laughs> the job is not as stressful as like our investment, like investment banking or anything. It's a, quite a cushy nine to five, um, but it's definitely more than government. And I think, especially because I'm still studying part time, I think a solid nine to five is enough for me right now. So how difficult was it to get used to working full-time coming out of uni? Yeah, I, I've, I don't know, I found it quite hard. Um, I've never been someone who's, yeah, had to put a lot of work into academics or schoolwork to get the results. Um, and yeah, I think I found that at school. And then when I went to uni, it was actually hard to adjust because I found that maybe I did need to put a bit more effort in than I thought. And yeah, works even more. Um, I remember when I started working full-time the first time I was just tired like just constantly tired after every week and so looking forward yeah. to the weekend um because yeah, it was just a complete change of lifestyle even just like being with other people like just talking and being in an office and having to be socially switched on for for that long of the day was was draining and then to do it every day for five days for a week um took a bit of getting used to um and yeah I think socially it's gotten a bit easier I'm working from home at the moment with the lockdown in Sydney um, but at the same time like it also means that there's maybe less accountability in the office and so mm. uh, it's sort of getting back to maybe being a bit less uh, like yeah accountable for how much work you do and yeah maybe I'm starting to slip into some old habits mm. yeah like the rigor starts to disappear yes yeah Sam what about you how hard was it to get used to working um, full-time. I feel like my experience is exactly the same as Ryan's. Um, I'm also lazy as. <laughs> I'm probably like one of the most laziest people I know. Um, yeah, working full-time, just juggling that responsibility. Um, nine to five, it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of five days. It's a lot of days. <laughs> yeah, it took some time getting used to it. The tiredness, oh, like, yes, I relate to that a lot. <laughs> Yeah, was there a period of time before you sort of thought, okay, I'm feeling like I can cope with this a bit better? Um, I think it probably took me three months-ish to not feel as tired and drained and to have the energy to um, be switched on outside of work and to do other things. Yeah, probably three months of it. Mm. So were you dancing Roughly. in those first three months or is that yes, something you yes, were I as was. well? Yeah, right, that, that will make you tired. <laughs> yeah. But the dancing was really fun though. Yeah. It's something I looked forward to. I, I think I find the same. Like all, all the other things I put my time and effort into outside of work, I find it very easy to put my time and effort into it because I've picked to do them because I really enjoy them. And so, yeah, maybe similar to Sam's dancing, like is things I did outside of work I really looked forward to and was keen to get involved with. Yeah. In fact, um, having work made me value my time doing those things and made me cherish it and actually made me, um, yeah, because I valued my time dancing more because I have less of it, it made my training more um, higher quality. I was more switched on and I became happy. I was with, like, doing it even though I was doing it less, if that made sense. Mm. 
Yeah. Do you imagine a world where you could be working full time in what you really love doing and have that kind of energy about it? Yes. <laughs> I've done that. Yeah, it's, it's really fun. It is so fun. Yeah. But I think it's something that um, it's very hard to find. And it's also very easy to be burnt out. Like I got burnt out playing games pretty easily, even though I really, really loved it. it definitely, it comes in waves, I think. Like there are some periods where it's just the best thing ever. Like really, it's the best thing ever. And then other periods, it's just so, uh, like so tiring, you just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And then you're torn because you've, you've kind of rationalized yourself that you want to do this and you've chosen it and it doesn't feel good and there's sometimes a dissonance, but yeah, it comes in waves. Yeah, it is funny, isn't it? I think that idea of I've chosen to do this and I'm still, I still feel like some move away from kind of energy, but I, I know that this is what I want. It's, mm. it's a funny uh, yeah, line to play. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, I am sort of hoping that that's what it'll look like when I'm in full-time ministry. Like that's what I spend all the time that I have free doing. Like I, I um, go to church and I uh, catch up with people and read the Bible like just before this interview, I was catching up with a friend from church and just chatting with them and seeing how they're going. And so that's how I invest my time outside of my workplace. And so hopefully that means that when I'm actually doing it as a, a profession or a vocation, then I will enjoy that as well. But I do anticipate that like, there'll just be some times where you wish you were doing anything else, um, even though that's the thing that I've chosen that I want to do. I'm sure that there'll be times in my life after this that I'll be thinking, oh, maybe I wish I'd stayed and just done what I've been doing at the moment. I don't know. Yeah. And how do you fight through those times? I guess that's that's what I'm thinking at the moment because I, I feel that as well in, in my life. But you go, how do, I, how do I remind myself or how do I stay in that zone as much as I can? Yeah. I think some of the things that's been like really helpful for me um, when I, maybe I've been doing uh, like a ministry related thing and haven't really felt like I've uh, been super invested in it or wanted to keep going in it. Um, just like I think when I've, when I've heard the impact that it's had on other people and been able to see the results and you don't always get to the see the results. Like that's just like an unexpected blessing that comes sometimes. Um, so yeah, sometimes you do work and it's futile uh, and that sucks. Um, and you think that you're doing it because you enjoy it. Um, but then nothing comes of it and that's just rough. Um, but yeah, I think that when you work and you can see the impact that it's made on other people, that's a really great refresher. And sometimes you're so caught up in your bubble of, of just doing the job and getting the job done that you, you can miss the bigger picture of what's actually going on around you and the impact that you're having on others. And Sam, you're, I can feel that you've got a really strong level of achievement. So is there something about achievement that drives you or is it something else? Um, definitely achievement's a big part of it. Um, is it something else? I think I'm naturally very competitive. I just like competition. I like the feeling of winning and I don't like losing. And that alone is enough. It's 
it's just like being hungry. Like, is there a deeper reason as to why you want, you get hungry? Like, not really. It's just something that keeps you alive and makes you feel good. And I think competition does that for me. Yeah. It's kind of a personality trait in a way. I guess it not is, everybody yeah. is, is like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how did you two meet? I don't remember the first time we met Samuel. It was definitely at school. Like we, yeah, we went to the same yeah, high school. We probably definitely would have met in year seven. We weren't in the same class in year seven, but. Yeah, I think we're mostly, like, if I were to be frank, we're mostly acquaintances on good terms that like each other. But because we were never in the same circles, um, I think we only really started to see each other interact in Ethical Leaders Club. Mm. So it was an after-school extracurricular activity. And it was led by this guy, really great guy, Andrew, and essentially talked about philosophical things and ethics and morality and even sometimes politics and psychology. And that was really interesting to talk about these things that were mostly just talked about and brushed off as soft skills. And having that conscious discussion that was explicit about these soft skills was very insightful and very interesting. And I think outside of that, just having that safe space to talk about things that didn't have a right or wrong, especially as a young person, it was very powerful. Yeah, that that idea of right and wrong, do you feel like that didn't exist elsewhere in your life almost at that point? Uh, I don't know. I, I think that's a hard question to answer. Did right and wrong exist before then? I think so, but I just don't think, I mean, sp- speaking for myself, I just don't think I had the critical thinking or the capacity to even be thinking about that stuff. Yeah. So that's Those where... Those really concepts that formed in my brain then. Yeah. So yeah. the Leader Club just like kind of illuminated that. Mm. And so it was that place that you felt like critical thinking was was really where you started to really apply it. I guess you learn it before that, but or where do we learn critical thinking if not in a place like that? Ryan, yeah. do you want to try to tackle yeah, this? Yeah, I guess like where does this mental toolkit that we have that we can be able to decipher and make choices uh, with moral value or, or ethical value come from? So how can, like... Where, where can we build that toolkit up? And I think a lot of it is happens in the family. Like as you grow up with your family, you sort of get yeah. a innate like morality that's drawn from the culture and the people around you. Uh, and yeah, you maybe like especially when you're young, you, you don't really question it. And so I think as you get older and you're exposed to more ideas, you're forced to grapple with like that. I thought this was okay, and then this person that I'm interacting with that. They don't think it's okay, and but I've mm. always known it to be okay, but I've never really thought about why it would be okay or not okay. I've just sort of done it, and it's been part of my life. And so as you, uh, yeah, hit those, yeah, meet those people or encounter those ideas, you, you start to, yeah, have to – either you can ig- ignore it or you can, yeah, tackle it head on and start to build this toolkit in your brain of, of trying to work out what actually is the right thing to do. Um, Damn. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, so it's sort of like you learn it automatically in a way by just interacting with different people who you might disagree with. Mm, And so you're sort of forming that just by living. But then critical thinking seems to be something that we develop to a higher level through being forced to reflect. Through being challenged. Yeah. Yeah. So I think being challenged is a big part of it. And Ethical Leaders Group is, is one of the first places that you felt you could do that or...? I think what ethical leaders was for uh, like a lot of us was it was a way to formalize that toolkit. So obviously very smart people in the past had done some very smart thinking about ethics and morality and they continue to do so. And 
uh, one of the great things about being human is you can learn their thoughts uh, and how they approach things uh, for yourself. And you can sort of, yeah, take in their, like, the way that they tackle ideas and, they, um, yeah, approach things. And you can formalise that in a way of thinking and it makes it a lot quicker and faster and maybe a lot more detailed in how you can sort of expose the mm-hmm. different nuances and, yeah, different ways and contexts where something might be okay, but in this context it's not okay. Um, and so, but, yeah, I think when you formalise that sort of critical thinking, uh, it's really helpful. And yeah. maybe you sort of knew it in your brain beforehand, but as you, like, sort of hear someone else say it and it's put into words or you grasp the idea, uh, you can then, like, latch onto that and it's something well-defined in your brain of, like, oh, this is, like, what I've sort of always thought about, but maybe now that it's, like, well-defined, I can apply it to more than just this situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. When it's finally made explicit, you really start to develop a more robust understanding of those things that were already in your in your brain. I completely agree. Yeah, so this idea of ethical and moral thinking, how does that help you... How can an understanding, a, a deeper applied understanding of this moral and ethical world help you in in real terms? How has it helped you in real terms today? Um, that's a great question. And it's so broad and a little vague at the same time. So it's kind of hard to answer. But I think the main part is it helps define your character and identity and your soul and your ego, like all of that important stuff. And having your virtues and morals um, explicit in your own head and following by and following them is a huge part of what makes you who you are. And I think having, having that, those sense of values really helps define your character, your identity, and it makes you a more confident person and it just allows you to operate ev- on everything that you do in the world better and more confidently. So mm-hmm. honestly, it just bleeds into every part of your life. So when you ask the question, how does it help you operate in the world? It's, it's not like you help the one guy on the train or there's one troubled person, you help them out. I think it really bleeds into everything you do from the mundane and to the important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a vague answer. Though. No, <laughs> but it's good. I guess to summarise, it's that, that moral compass, isn't it? It's, it's really having that compass to know in any situation, you know which way the, the dial should be pointing. That's right. Even if you're not going anywhere and you're inactive, it's still instills that sense of confidence and belief in yourself that makes you a happier, better person. Are there more problems today than in history? I don't, I don't think so. Like, I I really think that, yeah. Yeah. Humanity has been going so. for a long time and we've been having to, yeah, make decisions about every part of being here. And I think the, the questions that are actually troubling society right now, the ones that, like, maybe there are big debates about in the public sphere, they're not... Like, they're not old questions. Oh, sorry, they're not new questions. They're, they're old questions uh, and that they've been talked about um, 
yeah, for a very, very long time. Um, even like questions of uh, sexuality, identity, uh, abortion, like these are all like hot topics, but they're not new topics. Um, and yeah, I think we've encountered all these yeah, problems throughout history before. I agree. Do you, do you feel like there's some more, there's more urgency to them though today in some regards? Yes. And I think that's just because we are living in the best time of humanity to ever exist. We have, I mean, like just a couple hundred years ago, people were dying and dying of hunger and sickness and wars and such. And now because we're all very healthy and happy, we don't have to worry about any of those things. Well, only in first world countries. The most pressing issue, at least emotionally, are those questions of morality and ethics and our feelings. <laughs> so yes, it's more urgent now, but only because we are lucky and we can, we can, we can care about them, which is a really great thing. Yeah, I think that's well put, Samuel. Like it's, yeah, we, we had bigger fish to fry and now we don't. <laughs> um, and now these yeah. questions are the, big of, are the biggest fishes to fry which is good. We're just constantly solving problems, other problems, other problems. And now like the first 100 most biologically important life or death problems have been solved. Now we're on these specific nitty gritty ethics, morality, race, sexuality, ideology, all this sort of stuff. And what about the environmental and also the situation we're in now with the pandemic? Do you feel like those issues are moral, ethical issues that are giving more urgency to to the existing problems we've always had. I mean, it, it could wipe us out. I guess this is what we're thinking. You know, there, there, it seems like there could be a limited amount of time environmentally, maybe pandemically. I think maybe something interesting that's happened has been that we've developed this toolkit of talking about ethics and morality decisions in the public, sp public sphere and somehow... Uh, when it comes, when we've been faced with these decisions of, of environmentalism and we've seen it really clearly in the pandemic, uh, they've been politicised in the same way that those uh, ethical and moral issues have been. And that in some ways it's been like really, really unhelpful um, for yeah, people getting on board and being able to be united uh, with, with the same strategy for dealing with these problems because they've been politicised, like suddenly like if you're wearing a mask, maybe you're evil, or if you're not wearing a mask, you're evil. Like, um, it's, it's a moral value that we're attributing to these decisions about how we deal with the pandemic or how we deal with the environment that is, like, we've, we've just been able to, we've applied that, that moral and ethical political thinking that we've been doing in the public sphere for, for however long it's been doing it, and we've been applying it to these issues that really shouldn't be political. Uh, they should be, yeah, more about... I guess, survival. So, Ryan, you're saying that, say, environment and the pandemic have been politicised and that's unhelpful because if it's about survival, I guess if it is about survival, how do we come together to all create a unified front? Yeah, so I guess there's two strategies you could, you could employ. The first strategy is not going to work and that is to unite us morally and ethically. And that would be to say that everyone in the world shares, shares the same moral and ethical values. And actually, that's a solution that we, we, we don't want as a world and the world has never wanted, uh, especially now because uh, we value culture and cultures have different values. 
And so if we place a value on culture, we can't then go say everyone has to uh, think the same thing and believe the same things about the world. Uh, yeah, some people maybe are swinging more in that direction of saying, actually, we should yeah unify all our cultures and we should have the same values about all the same mm. issues all the time. And if you don't, you're wrong. Um, but I think for a very long time, we valued culture and cultures have different values. Uh, and in a lot of ways, like maybe that's okay that cultures do things differently. Uh, and I think it's a, a good thing that cultures do things differently. Uh, but at the same time, uh, yeah, yeah I, if, if everyone did share the same moral values, then maybe it would be easy to unite because they all believe the same things. Uh, and the other strategy is to, yeah, not make these issues moral or political. And I don't really have a strategy for how, how you might do that. But I guess if you, yeah, are trying to unite on this issue, you want to be able to say, like, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you feel, uh, we need to tackle this problem together. And so, um, yeah, how can we get along doing that? I, I think that's what our world leaders across the world are trying to figure yeah. out right now, is how can they unite a divided population in order to tackle problems together? And they're having a really hard time. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I, yeah. That question is so insanely hard to answer. How do you unite? <laughs> how do you unite the people to common to tackle a common problem? That's insanely difficult. And I know this podcast is called Young People Giving Adults Advice. And as a young person, I don't I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> but I do think there are some things that are really preventing that, like social media and social media algorithms are a big part in dividing the people. And how how um like clicks and things that are attention grabbing are, is what prioritize rather than what's good for society. I think that's a big part of what's tearing the social fabric apart. So if we can incentivize social media companies or, and newspaper companies to not value money through clicks and inciting negative emotions, I think that would go a really long way in uniting the people because seriously, these companies are incentivized just to stir things up and to not do things well. And look, I'm all for capitalism, but it's just not incentivized the right way in that specific spot. And it's a huge reason why we're so divided. Yeah. So you're talking about incentivization rather than laws. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's a big deal. Mm. Um, I'm no expert, but I did watch a Netflix documentary, The Social, <laughs> the social Dilemma, Dilemma and, it, Me too. And, it did, and it really <laughs> covered this topic so well. So yeah. I turned off all my notifications after that, <laughs> that documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not laws then? Why shouldn't they put laws on those things? Well, I, well okay, I think they're, they're tied together. I think there should be laws to prevent the incentives from being flawed in that way. And the laws... Or any sort of rules, any policy, any laws should be in place to guide our people to common good, like social good. Because right now the laws, or at least how the system is incentivized, and God, I hate talking about the system and the laws and greater society. I think it's horribly vague, but it's mostly just incentive to make money. And that can, and that's not so good. When social good is not first and humans aren't put first, it, it can result in bad things like this. Mm. And yes, laws play a very big part in making sure the incentives are right. I mean, we are hearing a lot about mindfulness and well-being these days. And I feel like that plays into the capitalist system because we need to create products that fit into that. People want to buy from companies that are doing good things for the environment or, mm -hmm. or creating positive effect products. Do you think that's a way forward? 
Yeah, in so, a, as opposed yeah. to just making money. Like, I mean, I guess it is an incentivization. Yeah, I think it's, it's a two-way street. Um, and I think you're right there, Leonie. Um, that companies need to be incentivized to create the right thing. And that comes from the consumers. If we are more mindful and the customer is smarter and cares about, care about the right things, then companies, naturally, because they want to make money, will pander to the consumer. And if the consumer cares about these things, then that will help incentivize the company speak to do good. And then on the other side, if government and regulation and policy also pushes them to, you know, like not spill dangerous chemicals in the sea and be fined and have and have punishments for those things, it's it it pressures it pressures companies to do good on both sides. So mindfulness good. So power to the individual and power to the system to do the right thing. I think it's both equally as important. And Ryan, why is mindfulness and well being such a big deal today, do you think? Um, maybe part of like what Samuel was talking about before, where you just like, we maybe didn't have the capacity to worry about our own well-being and our like, and mindfulness as much as we, like we, we didn't have the capacity to do it before because we were concerned about more immediate problems maybe, um, that were, yeah, causing us more strife than uh, our well-being and mindfulness maybe are, and maybe it's a luxury that we have now to focus on these things. But I think there's definitely another side of that story um, where we are less equipped to deal, uh, maybe f- even from an evolutionary standpoint, our our whole makeup as, as people are, are much less equipped to deal with the like amount of information we're processing each day, uh, the way we live our lives each day. We're just living in a in a vastly different environment to the one we evolved to live in. And yeah, so agreed. I think the other side to the story is like, yeah, maybe we, we didn't have time to worry about it back in the day. Um, but also like we're just, we're running into problems where we're just much less equipped to deal with. Um, yeah. All these things um, just from an even evolutionary standpoint. So why do you say evolutionary over educational? I guess there's, how do we develop more of these skills? Is, yeah. is it really just a matter of, of more evolution or can it come from education? Well, I, I guess we'll, we'll see if there's a limit or a detriment uh, as we keep increasing the amount of uh, information that, like, let's just use that as an example, information that we process each day. As we keep developing technologies like phones, we can just process information very quickly as the phone interfaces with us from our pocket and then, like, maybe... Elon Musk will finish his neural link and we'll be able to interface directly with our minds. And as we keep going, we might find that there's a limit or a detriment to this like information processing skill that we as humans uh, have had to do for a while and had to do forever, but not to this level and we haven't done to this level. And so, uh, yeah, if we just use that as an example, it, we might find that actually we are evolutionary equipped and we just need to learn. But we also might find that uh, we just don't have the toolkit in our body to do it. And so we can't do it. Um, we might reach a wall. Yeah. yeah. And how does religion fit into that? <laughs> well, religion is great, uh, especially Christianity, because, um, yeah, there is like all this stuff that we're talking about, like uh, fixing the planet, uh, even mindfulness and well-being, like, Christianity is so great because it has a God that gives you an identity that is safe and secure uh, and he's in charge of it and he's faithful and he's good. So it can't go away. It's 
it's in his hands and he is the one that's going to take care of it. So no matter what you do, like, um, yeah, he's got it safe and secure. And so, yeah, I think that does a lot to put um, there. Your, your stress is at ease, not to say that Christians don't get stressed, but like there's a great comfort in that. And at the, at the other time as well, like the Bible is pretty clear, God is going to destroy this earth. Uh, and so I'm not wholly invested in it. I'd love to keep the environment clean. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. So I'd love to keep it safe for future generations to use and to, yeah, help them out in that way. Um, but it's not the end goal. Um, I'm not someone who wants to, yeah, make the earth sustainable for a billion years um, and to make sure we don't run out of resources in that way. Um, yeah, it's like I'm fine for it to happen, but it's not what my future goal is for, for life. My future goal is very safe and secure in the promises that God has made to me in a new heaven and a new earth that won't pass away. Hmm. And Sam, how do you think religion fits into all of what we've been talking about and mindfulness and, and solving problems? Um, it's hard for me to answer. I'm completely non-religious. So I wouldn't be able to speak from any experience. I'd say mindfulness and well-being is, is 100% of, of all of this and at least speaking personally. So it doesn't have a place in my life. And that's just because, I mean, I think it's just because of family. Firstly, I wasn't, I didn't even know religion existed until I was put into school and there was like those sessions of religion where people like students were like plucked into their different religious groups and all worked together. I was always just in the conglomerate, like the bunch of kids that were non-religious. And until then I literally didn't know it existed. So. It doesn't play a pace in my life, and I think I'm doing fine as well. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that idea of the mindfulness and the the well-being aspect, it feels like people are searching for a way to get through, and I don't want to place religion in a, in a context of it's a way to get through. But do you feel like there's some kind of value that both of those things have. I, yes, I definitely think so. Um, as a non-religious person, I can definitely say that religion is just overpowered. Just if you look at it from, if you take a step back and look at what drove humanity to this point, like more, the bulk of it has been religion. And if it wasn't for religion, we wouldn't be um, here. We, like, well, we wouldn't be here today. And I'm pretty sure I saw a study. I can't quote the exact study and the person and the paper, but even from an evolutionary standpoint, the tribes and the groups of people that didn't have religion, they died out and the ones with religion were more successful. And that's why as humanity propagated and advanced religion, the people that had a religion were more successful and better. And it's incredibly important. But I don't think today it's as needed as it was before because we have access to more information, we're, more, we're better educated. Um, there are questions that really... Um, that were very hard, like death and the meaning of life and such and such are more easily answered nowadays. And I don't think it's as necessary, but for like the past millions of years, it was definitely so necessary. Seriously, religion, religion is so good. <laughs> and I guess what you're saying is that the perpetuation of existence was happening because of religion. And I guess the other aspect is it was a way to unify people to work together. Yes, yes, it's, it was really good at doing that. 
Is that the problem? That's where we come back to what we've been discussing as well, is how can we unify? And while religion provides very different belief systems, it still provides a way of unifying. What do you think about that, Sam? Religion is a way of unifying. It is. How can we best unify the people now? Again, hard to answer. The world <laughs> leaders are working on it. But I think identity is an incredible part of unifi unification. But I think the best identity that we can all unify ourselves with is being human. And I think if we all had more empathy for each other, God, this sounds so, oh my God, power, friendship and empathy. But if we have more empathy for each other as humans, that would be great. And I think that comes with education and mindfulness and critical thinking. And I think if we had the identity of we are all one human race, that would be the best unifying identity. And if we could educate that effectively across the world, I think that would be the best thing we could possibly do. Yeah, right. I think, yeah, I think religion unifies people in its group, but it divides people very strongly as well. It's a very strong divisor. Uh, and there's been... Yeah, if you look back in history, there's no counting the wars that are on the basis of religion uh, because people have different beliefs and beliefs are strong. Uh, and, yeah, that's why people fight is because they believe different things or they want different things. And so as much as I feel unified with, yeah, people like at my church and I do and it's great, um, yeah, it's not a unifying force universally because it is quite actually strong at dividing and, and Jesus knows this. He says in Luke's gospel, he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword and division um, because he knows wow. that he will divide people uh, and he'll divide even families. And uh, like, it's very clear, like you're, you're with Jesus or you're not. And there's a clear division that's there. And so I think as much as it, Jesus talks later about people being unified, it's very specific and people he's unifying people in his church uh, but he's not unifying everyone. Uh, and so, yeah, I think religion can be a very strong divisor. Why do you think Jesus didn't want to unify everyone? Uh, I think he did want to unify everyone, but he's realistic and he knows people don't want to be with him. Hmm. Um, yeah, so he, he, he understands that people will reject him and don't want to be with him. And, yeah, he understands that that's going to divide people from people who do want to be with Jesus and people who don't. And do you think Jesus has a vision for how it will play out or on earth? Like right now? Yeah, I guess we're, where we're going at the moment. Is yeah, that it's part going to be the plan? awful. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's his vision. Tell me. <laughs> um, yeah, his vision is that he knows that um, he knows that people suffer and he knows that people will continue to suffer and he knows that that sucks. Uh, and he is, yeah, he's doing something about it. He's going to make a world that's new without pain or suffering. So he knows it sucks and he knows it is going to keep being bad for a long time and he knows there's going to be division and natural disasters and wars and famines and earthquakes. Like, it's just going to be like what we've seen in history. He knows that uh, and he says it really clearly in Mark's Gospel in chapter um, 13, um, what is going to happen before he comes back. Um, but he's working really hard to make a new heaven and a new earth. And he's waiting for people to come and join him there. And that's why he's not come back yet, because he's waiting.
And as a minister in the future, if you are connected to your church but you live in the broader context of humanity, how do you how do you balance those two out? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and I think one of the great joys of being a minister is hopefully seeing other people come and join your church. Uh, and that's really like what... Um, yeah, God is really keen for Christians to be doing in the world as they wait for Jesus to come back. Because he wants them to be, yeah, in their local church encouraging Christians, but he wants them to also be out in the world and telling other people about Jesus and what he's done and how that, yeah, can save them from death. I think as, as, a, as a future minister, you'd, you'd want to be out and about in the community. You want to be loving people and, mm. yeah, sharing Jesus with them uh, and showing them what Jesus is like through loving them um, yeah so that you can yeah hopefully bring them into a, a, a better place where suffering won't last forever but instead um, a place without suffering or pain yeah I feel that you're saying it's not enough to lead by example you have to be out there and doing something I hear a lot of people talk about well it's best to just lead by example do you think it's important do you think it's enough to lead by example? Yeah, like if you are just doing and not talking, um, then people will be confused about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And so unless you teach them why you're doing what you're doing and what they should do in response, they're going to be uh, very, like if you've got a message, any message, or if you're a leader and you have a vision for your company, your workplace, for your uh, family at home, like if you're just a dad or a mum at home and you, you want something to happen around there and you just do it yourself, uh, your work colleagues or your, like your kids, just like, what are you doing and why are you doing it? They don't know uh, unless you tell them like, oh, I'm cleaning up this part of the house. And so while I'm doing that, do you want to like respond and also clean up your bedroom? Or like, like it's a, if, if they're not told, what the meaning of your leading by example is, they will be confused. And so you need to teach as well as do, um, and you need to speak and communicate rather than just do your own thing because people will just be left confused. What do you reckon, Sam? Is, is it enough to lead by example or how would you engage with leading by example? I do think it's enough leading by leading through example. I think that's possibly the most we can do. I mean, on an individual level, that's the best we can do. And I think... Ryan talked about how it's important to educate as well as do, but I think that's all part of leading by example effectively, right? So if you're educating and you're doing in a way that's good, that is the most we can do. And the more we, the more we can do more of that, effectively other people will be doing the same. And so I think it's enough. I think it's the most we can do. And how do you do that in your life? I don't think I'd do it as effectively as I could. And, but I think I mostly do it through being what I believe to be a good person, um, which includes being empathetic, um, being very understanding, being as open-minded as I can possibly be, and also striving constantly to be the best version of myself and also helping others um, to do the same thing is what I try to do. Obviously I can do that better, being more disciplined, to be more effective, I think everyone can be better at that, but I think that's what most people try to do. Most people who think they're good and try to be good do, and I do very similarly. 
Yeah. So how do you educate people on how you're doing that? Or how would you? Hmm. I think I'm going to talk about it in the context of power. And I don't think it's important for me to educate people on what I'm doing and how I'm doing right now, especially since I'm so young. And I guess that's because I don't have the skills, the tool set, the influence to really make a big difference. And until I do and make that difference, then it's important to educate. So I think it's all about um, gathering power for good. And that comes on, power is such a bad word, it's kind of got a negative implication, but power is skills and experience and maturity. And until I have an adequate level of those things, I won't be focused on educating. In fact, I'll be focused on educating myself. So self-empowerment before education. And of course, education to my friends and peers, colleagues and family on the way, but I won't be making a big, a big effort until I think I've actualized to a point where it's helpful to the world. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, I, like in many ways, I, I agree with Samuel. You don't want to, like you, why would you teach someone if you're not confident in what you're doing? You might just teach them the wrong thing. Um, and if you don't, if you haven't really like felt like you're you're fully there yet or you're fully where you want to be um, or you haven't got it quite right yet, I think there's a great danger in teaching uh, exactly. because you can teach people and they can learn and they can learn the wrong thing. Uh, so in lots of ways, I agree with Samuel. Um, but I, I do think there's, yeah, ways you can teach. Like um, like there's people younger than me that um, – so every Sunday morning I um, – I teach kids at, at church about Jesus um, and there's a lot of like teaching and hopefully I'm leading by example as I teach them those things. And I feel quite confident in what I'm saying and, and well, I'm just hopefully just saying what the Bible is saying and teaching them true things about the Bible. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, as I feel confident in that, I'm happy to do it, but I would never teach someone something from the Bible uh, in sort of like an authoritative teaching sort of way if I wasn't confident in what I was saying. Um, but I do still think there's place for like a discussion. Like uh, you're, you're both learning together maybe. So as, as um, like maybe a great example is, is with my wife as we sort of work out how to, like we got married less than a year ago. Like how do you even do marriage? Like that's just like a hard thing and we don't really know how to do it. Uh, and we're learning together. And so we'll, we'll talk about it and we'll be like, hey, like this is how I feel like we're going. This is how, like, how do you feel like you're going? Like, what sort of things could we be doing better together? Um, what sort of things do you think would help uh, in our relationship? Um, in all, like open book, different categories of what could be going on and we can keep working it out and learning together. Um, and I think there's a way we can educate ourselves um, together as we keep working out that thing together. And it's, yeah, we're not necessarily talking with authority to each other because we don't know, um, but we're still learning together and educating ourselves uh, in sort of a discussion-based uh, way. Yeah. Just to summarize, it feels like there's three elements of education there. There's that authoritative or speaking as an authority. Mm -hmm. There's being slightly ahead of the people that you're teaching and discussing, not being necessarily the authority or, or a very high authority. And then there's learning from the same perspective. And mm -hmm. I guess in all of those situations, you're facilitating a space for open conversation. Yeah, and I think that's really like a place where you can really do that wherever you are um, and a skill that anyone can learn. I agree. To just be, yeah, critical and curious 
uh, I think those are really important things to go together. You're, you're both curious and you're critical mm-hmm. about what's going on around you. And you can chat with anyone about what's going on around you and, and how you're feeling and, and even, yeah, different issues around the world. Like, just have an open conversation. Do you see that happening in society much? In your, no, let's speak specifically. Do you see this happening in, in your world much? On social media, no. <laughs> Obviously not. It's just filled with hate and anger and protests and, and insulting people. I would say in my circles and in my life, it's filled with people like that. But I think that's also because I've chosen people to be in my life who are curious, open-minded, critical thinkers. Um, but just judging from the world and the news and social media, no. Again, that's also because of how, like we said before, about how um, the news is incentivized to inspire hate and fear. And that's kind of what we all see. And that's what trending and is what's most popular so it's really hard to say whether our view of society is warped or not and whether it's truly objective it's it's very difficult yeah and i i mean it's it's a hard assumption to make that most people are not living in a world like you're describing your world to be but I guess I do make that assumption that a lot of people don't have an open place and a, and a safe place to have such open discussions about things. And I think it does come back to this critical thinking. How do we develop that? Where does that come from? And maybe that's a good question for you, Ryan, you know, um, from a person who's dedicated to the church. How mm. do you bring in the critical thinking elements? Yeah, it's a good question. I was just about to jump in off the back of what Sam was saying. Like, I feel like over the last, like, uh, even at even at uni, uh, so school school was pretty pretty easy to find that sort of, um, yeah, someone who's willing to chat about whatever and always, um, yeah, good open conversations. I found that really well at the school that Sam and I went to. Um, but when I went to uni and uh, even as I've come into full-time work, I think I found it really easy to just um, there's just so many like Christians around like and I could I could just be friends with only Christians and I'd have 500 friends and like it would just be like an easy way for me to comfortably stay in my own bubble like mm. and not be challenged or not think about anything else uh, and I'm yeah I'm not unaware to that um, problem coming up and so uh, and like. The, the workplace that I first worked in was a Christian workplace, like it was a Christian college. And so even that first workplace where I had, I was still in sort of my own Christian bubble and I was sort of finding that like, yeah, maybe I, I don't have that many close Christian, no, close friends who, who aren't Christian. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a dangerous place to be for, for lots of reasons um, because you, you, yeah, you don't get that critical thinking skill set um, developed if you're just sitting there. And so maybe like one of the things I've, I've always done is try and expose myself to lots of different types of media from lots of different parts of the political spectrum, um, mostly because I'm interested in hearing what people would have to say. And so I, mm-hmm. I think that's important. And I, I never really lost that. Uh, but I do think the personal relationships that you have with people are much more powerful in changing people and changing people's opinions. And you could hear something on the internet or on the TV and just be like, well, that's just what they think. Uh, but if you hear it from a friend, it's, it's, I think it's much more challenging and really, yeah, forces your mind to, to really deal with what they're saying. And so I think I've been really grateful for, um, 
yeah, a lot of my, my wife's friends, she's done a much better job of keeping her circles mm. more open. And I've really had the benefit of adopting a lot of her friends um, and being able to have those conversations with them and, yeah, hopefully develop that skill set. But I still think that's an area where I have to have to keep pushing myself to grow because it's just so comfy in your own bubble. Like, it really is. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the reason it's comfy is because you're, you're not being challenged critically and that's in some ways really nice because you, all you're doing is getting affirmed. Uh, and affirmation is good. I like affirmation. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that's something where you have to be sort of aware to it and, and yeah, open your eyes to it a little bit to make sure that you are still like understanding what's going on in the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, I'd like to jump in and add my two cents and where can you develop critical thinking? I'm going to speak personally that I think competition is honestly one of the best places to develop critical thinking. And I don't think this is made explicit or talked about enough, but competition is just amazing because it doesn't matter about any, anything like race, sexuality, identity. It's really about who can do the thing the best. And when you have a competition of ideas and the best ones bubble up to the top, and if you're losing, you really have to come to terms with what you think and what you think is best, and it's, and it's not working. So you have, in order to progress in competition, you have to be able to face your ego and to constantly shape your way of thinking constantly and you're and when you're constantly winning or losing it's a barrage of shaping your beliefs and how you approach things right and that's why competition is so good for developing critical thinking because in order to succeed it's you must have it there is no other way you can succeed without it and if you're closed-minded you're immediately punished you'll just not win if you're closed-minded so I think allowing yourself to lose and to allowing, your, allowing yourself to have your ego destroyed again and again and again and to allow yourself to also feel the joy of victory is so important for developing critical thinking. And I think that's why it's such a huge part of my identity that I'm a competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as I'm a competitor, I will always have to be able to critically think and assess what is the best and what is not. Yeah, I like... I don't know if I wholly agree with that. I think on an individual level, that's certainly true. But I think when you pull that out, uh, some ways like competition uh, has been something we've had to regulate fairly closely as a society uh, mm-hmm. because it's it does end up being closed-minded in a lot of ways. Like uh, you can think of like a very simple example of like a monopoly. Um, oh, yeah, I agree. Like, I agree. They're at the top of the competition and unless you regulate against the monopoly, then they will just win every time. I agree, I agree And they completely. can stay set in their ways. And so, like, in a lot of ways, I think personally, yeah, competition can... Really and I guess I'll have to redefine it as fair and balanced competition. That's, mm-hmm. where, it, that's where you learn and thrive the most. Yeah, because obviously when competition is unfair and the people that win can reshape the rules, it doesn't become... That's not a good competition anymore. It's rigged. Mm. Do you think there are people excluded even from the competition sometimes because of ability, skills? Yes. Um, And that really sucks. That honestly really sucks. And even if it's not made explicit, I mean, something I can definitely speak from experience is sexism in video games. It's so hard if you're not male. You just get constantly... Harassed and you're not treated equally, you're not treated as a human, and it sucks. So, competition is also a privilege to be able to compete as a privilege because it can be very hard to even have the right to compete, which sucks. I think everyone should be able to compete, Ryan. Yeah, 
I think as well, like, um, like we just had the Olympics, um, and we like it's a great example of like ways in which they have tried to foster fair competition. Um, but part of what they do that so like for example in um, like some of the boxing or the weightlifting, like they have different weight classes of like can you compete in these specific conditions because it would be unfair if you competed against this person because you're different to them because you weigh like 100 more kilos and you can lift like 300 more kilos. I don't know. But like, so there's regulation. I think that can be applied, that same sort of idea can be applied and extended out where some companies will have really like well-defined values and they will not operate or do business um, with XYZ for reason XYZ because of their values. And another company might not have those values uh, and they might be able to get the better deal or the better opportunity um, uh, or they have a different set of values, which means that they don't get the deal or don't get the opportunity. Uh, and so I think in some ways your your own beliefs can sort of preclude you uh, from like competing uh, in a similar way to like maybe being in a different weight class in the Olympics. Like you can be excluded from the competition uh, because you uh, believe X, Y, Z or you your company is like X, Y, Z uh, or you're like minority group or whatever um, is perceived as this or wants this or has these values, they're sort of excluded from like succeeding well in whatever competition. Like it's a bit like that um, like famous graphic of like um, telling all the different animals to compete by climbing the tree and the monkey wins and the fish loses because the competition favours the monkey. Mm. <laughs> um, and sometimes the competitions or, or the the, the games uh, that we play uh, as a society are not, yeah, fair to each fair, set yeah. of value groups or set of, like, yeah, uh, set of minorities or whatever, either by discrimination or simply just because, like, they believe this thing and their culture is this thing and they want to do, like, <clears throat> this thing. And But the way we set up culture doesn't support that very well and so they end up falling behind through no fault of their own, only that they want to keep their culture. Uh, and that's, yeah, a very sad thing. Um, yeah. Sometimes there are some moral or ethical things in a culture mm. that if we want to be equal, we should be allowing everything. You know, there's a contradiction of ideas there. And yeah, I guess in terms, of, in terms of culture, we've sort of often thought, uh, well, everyone should have the right to, to live their own culture. Australia is very much like that. But should we put nowadays, yeah. <laughs> boundaries on that? Yes, we should. We, there mm. should definitely be boundaries for that. I mean, let's, let's say there's a hypothetical culture that it's fine to kill people. That should not be allowed. Mm. I think um, as long as we have the scope and the lens of viewing things as humanity first and what's good for yourself as a human and others as a human, and we have rules that protect humanity and care about humans, that those rules should be number one. Right, and I think religion hit that on the nail pretty much perfectly. They created a set of rules that were mostly good for humans first, and that's why it was so successful. We definitely need to have rules. And philosophy did too. I mean, it said that we shouldn't hurt other people. I mean, I mean, capitalism says that, I think, doesn't it? That you, you can have the right to earn money in whatever way you want and live your life as long as you don't harm others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So should that be the only rule or where, who decides the rules and, and where should we allow people to decide those rules? I don't know. 
um, I think like the government, obviously, the legal system decides these rules and also people decide these rules. They can give certain behaviours power or not and, inf and influence it. The specifics and how this stuff works is a bit too complicated for me. You <laughs> 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 probably need to have a degree in politics and government <laughs> and, and this sort of stuff to really give a concrete answer. Yeah, I guess like you got to have, you, I guess the hope is that eventually we'll sort of develop a like global, like unique um, consciousness and, and conscience and moral compass that sort of lets all of humanity agree on these things. But it's, it's, I just don't think that's going to happen. Mm. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to agree and have the same set of values like even I was talking about before, like religion, like if you want to keep more than one religion in the world, then by default you're going to have more than one set of values in the world. And so, like, you're not going to be able to unite everyone um, without getting rid of culture and without getting rid of religion. Uh, and so there will always be differences. And so you, I guess the goal is to compromise the least with, with all those things. I guess what that's sort of what we're trying to do is try and make it as fair as we can for for everyone without yeah stopping anyone from from participating but it's it's a hard problem and uh no not everyone's going to be happy mm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that question is just too hard it's Curiosity, I think, I, I'm really interested about curiosity and you both have very strong beliefs or, or directions that you want to head in or what interests you. How do we encourage other people to stay curious or to be curious or to create curiosity in their lives? I'm going to think about that for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> right, go uh, ahead. Like, I, um, I think firstly, like some people don't, don't want to be curious and um are we are we okay with that like people just who are happy and content with where they are and don't need to to know anything more um is are, are we not happy with people being happy without by not knowing stuff i guess is the first question and in some ways we are clearly not happy when people don't know things because they make mistakes that go against our culture so we want people to be educated uh like uh, a good example is like um, when people say, like you see this a lot on the internet or on Twitter, they'll say a slur and a lot of time they mean the slur, but a lot of time they don't mean the slur and they're not mm. educated and we're not okay with them not knowing. So we educate them so that they can know and we want them to, to know so they can act properly in our society and, and live well and stop saying that word, for example. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways, we're not happy that people are, are uneducated and are not curious. Uh, but I guess with everything, we, we, we also want to give people their own personal freedom and we don't want to force every ideology and every thought down people's throats as well. And so I think with curiosity, 
uh, I think I personally think it's something to be valued and knowing stuff about society is good. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, opening people's eyes to that idea of of how good it is to to know and be connected, um, even just by sharing your personal experience of being like how how enriching it is to be a a part of the global community and all the quirks and, and idiosyncrasies that are part of the global community and and just knowing stuff about different people and different people's lives and how they think and what makes them tick is great. And I love that. And I think it makes for, yeah, really fulfilling relationships with people and fulfilling relationships with people you've only just met because you, you might already know something that can connect with them. And so mm. I think curiosity is great. Um, but I'm very careful to, to mandate it or, you know, or force it down people's throats. Yeah. But I guess Leonie's question was, how do we stay curious? I I'm, I've been thinking about it. I don't know how. I don't know how to make a non-curious person curious again. I guess a lot of it is tied to well-being and mental health. I think, not that I know specifically, but I think there is a good correlation with healthy confidence and like I mean healthy self-image and self-esteem and having ha- healthy mental health is very tied to being curious and switched on and being willing to learn. So how do you stay curious? Is take care of yourself and do your best to be happy. And I think that is how you stay curious, honestly. Yeah, that's great. The question is pretty two-dimensional. No, I like it. I like it. (laughs) I'd never thought about that before. I think that's a really good answer. (laughs) Thank you. But yeah, like people become close-minded and horrible when their lives are horrible. So we need to take care of those people and treat them with empathy. And after we, after long, a lot of healing and help, can they become good and curious again? Hmm. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah, very cool. So if you guys had to pick one problem in the world to solve, what would it be? Okay, personally, it would be like just no fake news and <laughs> inciting like, like horrible news and inciting like bad feelings and fear and all that stuff. I just, I don't think it's the most harmful thing in the world right now. I probably think like climate change might be worse and like poverty and famine might be worse, but at least personally, that's what grinds my gear the most. And I think it would, like how insidious it is, is just so hard to define and you can't feel it. So I would just, if we could just eradicate it, that would probably have like insane, that would probably create like insane good for the world. Mm. And do you think what you're doing now, it sounds like you're sort of working in that area. Um, no, I don't think I'm doing anything to that right now. Um, which is fine because I think it's important to like constantly be working and educating yourself and to become a more mature person. And when I have the power to tackle a problem like that, I think I would like to. Mm. So that, that comes back to maybe you're leading by example for now with the future. Yeah. Leading by example for now. Mm. Um, but really tackling it will probably come in a decade or two when I have like a million dollars and like <laughs> the seed capital to create a company that tackles the issue. <laughs> yeah, cool. Very cool. Ryan, what about you? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I obviously look forward to a world where the, the problem isn't sin, um, but that's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. <laughs> and so I think the problem that um, I would try and tackle I don't know. One of the things that makes me quite quite angry is this statistic that is like there's enough food for everyone in the world, but people still go hungry. Like we produce enough food to feed everyone. 
um, but people still get hungry. So I guess, yeah, that just like, it just annoys me. I'm sure it annoys everyone. It's like, why? Like, why, why is that happening? And so I guess I would love to fix supply chains um, so that people could, yeah, because that does make me a bit angry that we're just I'm doing this thing and we're making food yeah. and we're doing a good job at it because we're making enough for everyone. But it's not yeah. everyone. No, I just think it's, it's funny. Like, You're like, I think it's annoying that people are dying of hunger. It's just annoying. Yeah, it's just <laughs> annoying. Like, yeah, we can fix it. <laughs> I'm just so confused why we haven't done that yet. Yeah, why keep, haven't we done that yet? <laughs> yeah, we're just focusing on the wrong things. Yeah, maybe we are. I think fake news. I think that's a lot of it. Is we are yeah, if we have no fake news, we can focus on the things that are important, like that. <laughs> yeah. So we can stop being annoyed by people dying from hunger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what are you most looking forward to in the next five years? Hmm. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is getting out of this lockdown. I mean, I'm a person that really lives in the present. So a lot of the questions today that were about, like, how was ethical leaders or like what constitutes to like a healthy family upbringing, like creating good values and stuff. I found those hard to answer. So a five year time horizon is quite hard for me. Firstly, mm -hmm. getting through this lockdown, I'm so looking forward to getting out of it. And there's a new game coming out that I'm really looking forward to as well. And that's the extent of my time horizon. Hopefully five <laughs> years, I'll be a better person. <laughs> but I trust that every day I'll make the right decisions to have longevity in my life. I guess that's the kind of person I am very day to day. Nice. Ryan. Yeah, I think I'm similar to Samuel. I'm, I'm really keen to see what God is going to do in, in growing me and making me more like his son, Jesus. Um, and so, I'm, yeah, I'm keen to see what God has in store in terms of, yeah, how I will grow. Um, and also, yeah, I'm excited to see that happen in the, the lives of people around me, people close to me. And what is Ethical Leaders, the group you belonged to in high school, how has that had an impact on who you are today? It was definitely probably well, one of the highlights of my high school experience, for sure. Very memorable and very, very illuminating. So it's probably really helped with a lot of soft skills and those soft skills that I've learned has bled into success in probably all facets of my life. So probably really good, but the, the impact is invisible. Mm. Yeah. And that's also really powerful. Yeah, I think for me it's like the one of the first places where I really got a, a taste for for talking about these sort of ethical and, and moral issues in a in a public sort of sphere where yeah, lots of people there, like twenty people there all had different upbringings, different backgrounds, uh, and different ways of viewing the world and just being able to sit with them and see what they thought about everything was really eye-opening for me in terms of just yeah, being aware that there's a much bigger world out there than myself. And I think, yeah, that first taste was really helpful for me as I met lots of different people from different walks of life uh, as I went through through uni and now into work. Like, yeah, I'm just aware that there's, there's more going on than in my little bubble. And, yeah, there's different thoughts happening in other people's brains and the thoughts happening in my brain. And it's, yeah, important to yeah, be, be wary of that and to, to, yeah, understand that people are different to each other and the best way to love people and to take care of people is to, to know that and to respond well when, yeah, things 
aren't what you what you thought they would be based on your own personal experience. Um, yeah. I imagine that's incredibly important as you head towards becoming a Christian minister as well. Um, do you think that that might be a problem within the current ministry? Um, like, uh, one of the things that I think has really done a good job of, of shaping how people think about this is uh, CMS, which is the Church Missionary Society in Australia. Uh, and the, what makes them different from other missionary societies maybe is they're actually really concerned with uh, sending people to engage not on the basis of bringing their own culture in, but actually the, the goal of the first three years on mission for them is to learn the language and to be able to live in the culture. And that's it. Wow, that's like, great. They mm. don't, they, they sort of expect you to, to get connected in with the local church and whatever. And, but really like if you've ticked that one box of, of learning the language and getting into the culture, you've, you've done what you're supposed to do in those first three years. Hmm. And they've got this long-term vision for, for people they send overseas of sending them for 20, 30, as, as long as they can over there um, so that they can yeah, really be entrenched in the culture there and not just try and bring and import their own culture on top of it. And I think what that's done is as uh, churches, especially in, in Sydney, cause that's where I can speak to because that's where I'm from, have yet yeah, heard about what CMS is doing and then sent money or supported them or yeah, gotten in touch or prayed for these missionaries. That's really had a big impact on how we view our, view our own selves and our, our own life in, in people. Cause it's yeah, a lot easier in Sydney to engage with the culture because we're part of that culture, but there are still differences uh, as people, as, as I interact with different people. And so having that sort of, that sort of, uh, idea when you come into ministry has been, I think, really good for um, people in Sydney. So I think actually people in Sydney are doing a pretty good job of meeting people where they're at. Uh, obviously, they could be doing it better, but I think, yeah, the work that CMS has been doing in engaging people and meeting people where they're at and their own culture in their own language has been a really fundamental building block in, in how people in Sydney and the rest of Australia have been treating people as they do ministry with them. Yeah, cool. And so what language will you learn? Um, I already speak a bit of French, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll keep going with that. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Um, I guess wherever there's a need, you just – there's so many places in the world where people don't even have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Uh, and that's like – similar like I'm just annoyed by that that makes me angry like why why have we not gone to these people and and met them where they're at and so um yeah I guess where there's a need that's where we might end up going but we'll see so what advice do you want to give the older generations yeah it's a good question I think that I don't know I just have such a respect for the older generations I've learned so much from them and so Part of the advice I want to give to them is is don't be afraid to to give advice and um, yeah don't be afraid to sort of share your wisdom with people because um, yeah I think a lot of times I don't know I guess the sort of culture is going in a way that sort of disregards the old and and maybe maligns them for for how they've acted as a culture in the past mm. um, but I think there's so much we can learn from the older generation and so. Um, yeah, my advice is to don't be afraid to, to keep teaching and to keep sharing um, what you grew up with. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, I don't want to give advice to old people. I think they're great <laughs> as well. I understand that I'm still a kid, so no advice. And 
keep doing you adults because I think most adults out there are really great, understanding, mature, well-spoken, intelligent people. And I don't think I can match up to the adults. So they should, <laughs> just like what Ryan said, they should be giving us kids advice. <laughs> so more of that. That is great. <laughs> yeah. Ryan and Sam, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It's been great. Thank you for making this happen. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Young People Giving Adults Advice. Keep listening to us on all the places you normally listen to us and make sure to give us a rave review on Apple Podcasts. This was put together by Marchmade Collective.